Welcome to Disrupted Asia, navigating the global order of tomorrow, a podcast series by FES in Asia, where Asia and Europe's leading experts tackle some of the most pressing questions around the changing geopolitical environment and how this is shaping the global order of tomorrow. This podcast will look at the geopolitics of infrastructure in Asia. To discuss these issues with us is Dr. Moritz Rudolph. Moritz is the author of the book Belt and Road Initiative, The Implications for the International Order. He is also the founder of Eurasia Bridges and currently a postdoctoral fellow at Yale School's Paul Tsai China Center. Welcome to our podcast, Disrupted Asia. I'm Dinkim Silo, and we are delighted to have you with us today, Moritz. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Your book looks at the Belt and Road Initiative and its implications on the international order. Let's take a step back and look at the broader question. How does and how will infrastructure projects shape the evolving geopolitics of Asia and indeed the global order? Well, there is a great demand for infrastructure investment in, in Asia. 40 trillion US dollars, I think, is what the ADB predicted. And um, with the Belt and Road Initiative, China has been since 2013 one of the countries trying to um, invest and to play a, um, a role in closing this gap. This is just one, um, like it has been the first country that has been like launching such, an, such a great overarching initiative. But um, as we see now, it is not the only one trying to um, get his foot into, um, into Asia, into Asian infrastructure development. So we see there's a big demand. China has been um, involved in this for over eight years now, and other countries are not following suit. To what extent do you think China has been able to succeed in shaping either a regional or an international order uh, through BRI, for instance? Um, well, I think it's, it's really early to say. So um, what we can see at this point now is that um, for the first time, China is laying out a vision on how they want to have um, uh, networks across a wide area of um, issue areas, networks which are China-centered and um, networks of which create connectivity, of course, with China and the region. And um, so the question is, when we have those networks emerging, to what extent China is actually able to um, um, set the, um, uh, not, not only to control narratives and to have discourse power within those um, networks, but also to um, set new standards. And we see this, for instance, in the cyber realm, where um, China is pushing forward its um, a, a digital Silk Road. And with this, in this digital Silk Road, China is um, promoting the idea of um, cyber sovereignty, which is a state-centered regulation of um, the um, information space, how the, how the Chinese side sees it. And in this, re in this regard, we can see a close connection between the Belt and Road Initiative, China's clearly spelled out ambitions, and its um, re outreach to other countries. So this is on the content side. But we also have this in terms of um, process and in terms of procedure. So they are not the rules that are already um, set up yet by China, but the way of how the Belt and Road Initiative has been promoted in this region clearly reflects domestic Chinese um, approaches to policymaking. So it's the same people who are designing and pushing forward the Belt and Road Initiative who are responsible for um, uh, designing the five-year plans in China. 
So you have this aspect of program exper experimentation. You have this um, expert and uh, this, this process of pilot projects. And this is um, that, that means that you have a couple of um, like you have an, an abstract plan. And then within this abstract plan, you have um, a, a lot of leeway in having um, pilot projects, like specific projects. And after a review period, you, you get to the standardization um, phase. So you have, um, for instance, in the Belt and Road, agriculture as a topic, there are um, uh, the, the issue focuses on agriculture cooperation under the Belt and Road Initiative. And then there are across the world different pilot projects where um, different um, state-owned enterprises and different actors in regions like Angola, like Fiji, like Cambodia, uh, are having this experimental phase of Belt and Road Agriculture Cooperation. And then after five years, you have a review process, and then you have the standardization phase. And with the Belt and Road Initiative, in most of those um, um, issue areas, we are now at the end of this experimentation phase. So the standardization will come next. So we are not there yet, but in terms of how it is being promoted, this is, it just reflects domestic Chinese policymaking. And this by itself, by projecting this, this process on an international level, can also be seen as um, standard setting. From a geopolitical perspective, where do you see uh, the hotspots in this race lay? And how could infrastructure-induced escalating tensions in the region look like? It depends on if you look at the whole um, Eurasian continent as an as an area. There, I think the geopolitical hotspots are where China is investing in areas which used to be really looking towards um, the United States, for instance, in the Middle East, in which um, in which China is now um, becoming more active, and which are all also fragile countries. So I think. We see this in Iraq, for instance, where um, Hashtashabi militia are um, engaging in um, with Chinese promises of infrastructure investment and actually um, putting this on their agenda for parliamentary elections. So this is one of those countries which are fragile, where the U.S. is leaving a vacuum and where Chinese infrastructure investment is, is coming in. We also see this in other regions where, um, for instance, in Southeast Asia, where um, China is expanding its influence. So um, I think we have um, Southeast Asia and the Middle East as the two core areas where we can see increasing geopolitical um, tensions stemming from infrastructure investment. You've mentioned about narrative and you prefaced your first response, quoting from the ADB's um, infrastructure gap funding in the region, which also means that very often a lot of these projects are cloaked under the development agenda. But as we see uh, today, it is certainly juxtaposed with geopolitics. So the obvious question is, where does the development agenda really sit? Or are these really, really geopolitical projects? Um, I think they're both. Um, maybe on an abstract level, you can always see the geopolitics of infrastructure investment. Because we look, then we usually draw the um, comparison to um, uh, building the Suez Canal or building of the Berlin Baghdad um, railway connection or the Marshall Plan. So it is possible to look at infrastructure investment in a in a purely geopolitical sense, um, uh, and we can do this with the Belt and Road Initiative as well. The question is, to what extent does is does it really help us when we want to understand where China is really going with this? 
So um, we can we can see it can be viewed as a response to geopolitical challenges, trying to open up Eurasia, trying to 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 expand the influence and having those China centered um, networks established. But um, we can also um, have different narratives that could be um, promoting the actions of the Chinese Communist Party, which, for instance, is um, if we just take it um, by by its documents, is now resolving a new principal contradiction. And um, what we see domestically with the common prosperity narrative of having a um, redistribution of wealth from the um, highest earning enterprises to the society in China as a whole, China is also promoting exactly the same narrative internationally when it comes to development of other countries, saying that there is this gap. And with this infrastructure investment, because there's clearly an, an incentive and there's clearly an, a demand for that, China is trying to, to fill this gap. So when you ask, for instance, people who didn't have access to a basic infrastructure, in many cases, they will say they actually benefit from this on a really individual level. And the geopolitical dimension of this is just completely irrelevant for them. So I think it's in most cases, it's definitely both. And I think they can coexist. They're not exclusionary. Apart from... China's BRI, the big players have visions of their own. US is pushing for the B3W. Uh, regionally, India has the Sagarmala, and we also know that the EU also has Asia Connectivity Project. What does this mean, however, for countries in the region, especially the smaller and middle power, middle income countries? Should they approach it from a hedging type of uh, approach, grab what they can, or should they take more principled stands and approach around it? If you don't have to make a, a judgment call for that, if it is just about having this infrastructure investment in those regions, having three players or potentially four players competing over investing there, um, this can be, um, uh, if you're not drawn into any, it's not an either or, well, then, of course, it makes sense to have those countries trying to um, to, to fight over you. Um, the problem is, um, or the, the question will be whether this will be, be reality or whether it's just there will be enough political pressure coming from either the United States or from China to say this is an either or. On the rhetoric level, it is um, none of those countries say they all say it's inclusive. It is um, it's like a win-win approach. But I think... It will be in those countries which are already in between um, where, we, where we can see to what extent it's possible to balance this out. So it will be interesting to look at um, um, a country like the Philippines, for instance. It will be interesting to look into um, a lot of those Southeast Asian countries, which um, in, in some cases are having close relations with China, but they also have um, close relations with the United States. And I think that the one of the problems that we have when we when we think about now we have this response of um, like the B3W and we have the Global Gateway. Um, to what extent those two initiatives will be also um, uh, be competing with each other, and um, uh, so so there's no clear agenda of like a Western um, uh, cooperation against um, coordination against the Belt and Road Initiative. You just have different actors moving into those those countries, and you have this ideological maybe value. Um, narrative somewhere in the background but when it comes to the to the reality of those infrastructure investments this doesn't play such a significant role i think let's look specifically at uh, the eu the recent joint eu indo-pacific strategy 
looks at in infrastructure as one of the key pillars for engagement in the region, what are some of the best approaches to evolving that vision on the ground? Uh, what could these projects create uh, complementarities or how could they differentiate itself from the other existing ones or the other evolving ones? Through the Global Gateway, there will be a 46 billion um, euro investment um, package being announced for um, as part of the Global Gateway. And um, I think when we look in like the numbers and the timing, they show China has larger numbers and it has been engaging in this as part of the strategy for um, um, for for longer time. When it comes like to being generally involved in those as an as a provider of infrastructure. This um, European country, the European Union, European countries, they, of course, in the past have been much more engaged than China. It's not just not, not being part of such an initiative as, as the Belt and Road Initiative and now Global Gateway is. But um, so what can the European Union do? One of the issues is to be able to um, uh, generate more acknowledgement of what they're really doing. So just on this making, um, being better in selling what they are already doing. And um, uh, having also a soft power um, approach with that, just saying to get the spread the message, because China has been doing the, exactly the opposite. There's been so much talk about it, and um, on the other side, so little deliverance in Europe. It's the other way around. And in addition to that, when we look to like the um, what do you do with the money, um, uh, like what the European Union, uh, what the advantage they could have is, is higher standards high technological standards, um, uh, clear procedures that makes it easier to know who to call when there's a problem, easier dispute resolution mechanisms, which are which are more clear for all of the um, participants. Um, and then this clear focus on, on green technology, just like having a sustainable approach with the, those infrastructure investments. And China, of course, is trying to, to push the same narrative. When it comes to the reality of having an advantage and, and actually putting this into practice, there's still um, a big advantage from the fr from the EU. And, um, and I think another aspect, which is also important, is just when it comes to the dispute resolutions, this is an area where um, there is, when it's a European initiative, there's more... Um, it's just a more sophisticated approach to doing that than, than because China is just right now trying to internationalize its courts and trying to internationalize um, dispute resolution, which is part of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is where you don't need to go through the um, established, more Western structures that, um, that China was not a part of setting up. So this is, this is happening at this moment right now. But on the other side, of course, so this is, this is the, the advantage. And they would be able to deliver that. But the Chinese side, they also have the advantage of um, uh, well, saying that they want to have those high standards. But when it really comes to um, getting a project done, sometimes they would be more flexible. In, um, and then for if you are um, a country that or a partner that would need to have those um, just a quick infrastructure um, uh, investment, there, this flexibility of China will um, still be advantage for them. So for the European countries being flexible there and um, not trying to just export their own standards to, to recipient countries would be something that would be really beneficial if the Global Gateway were to become successful. Speaking of climate and sustainability, COP26 and recently the IPCC report puts a very strong emphasis 
on the emergency nature of this issue. And we know that development of these grand infrastructures are hard to delineate from carbon emissions. What challenges or perspectives do these pose to the conversation and the narrative now? Well, I think since 2019, um, from the Chinese side, there was this promise delivered that the um, Belt and Road Initiative would become more transparent as a process and more green and focusing on sustainable development. There is an awareness of um, uh, the importance of sustainability um, and um, green infrastructure um, investment in Asia, but also as part of this whole initiative. So this, um, it is, it is key. It, it is central also for the European and also for the um, for the um, P3W to um, uh, focus on sustainability, focus on, on green development. So the, the question is, who will be better in um, actually putting this into practice and who will be able to deliver? And there, I think, I'm afraid this is one of the issues where in, in with the Belt and Road in China, there's still more talk than actually um, ability to put this into practice. There's still a long learning curve. To avoid the overlap and duplication of a lot of uh, work that these infrastructure visions intend to do, what, in your view, is the best approach to get all these stakeholders uh, to work together for win-win outcomes rather than against each other? Are there also prospects for new multilateral ways uh, to look at uh, moving forward? Well, given the current political climate, I'm not that optimistic about that. So um, I, I'm, I'm aware that it is necessary, it's more necessary than ever to have um, international institutions um, like having a multilateral approach to, um, uh, in, especially in the, in the Indo-Pacific region, I'm just not that, that optimistic that there's on a very basic level and a common understanding of what multilateralism really means in the region or in general, because from the in, in, in China, the like multilateralism, multipolarity are being applied as synonyms. And um, so it's more focusing on the on the structure, while in, in Europe, multilateralism is mostly viewed as a as a process. And um, and I think that to to have this being applied in Asia for for an issue like infrastructure investment in the region, I just don't see I just don't see it happening. Of course, they are on the multilateral level cooperating with the UNDP and having the the Belt and Road Initiative put on the agenda of the UNDP as twenty thirty um, SDGs. But um, at the same point of time, China is engaging in a regional setting, China plus X mechanisms, which are China focused, but also in a bilateral setting and just in a really abstract level in, in, this, in this multilateral setting. So it's used this multilateral setting because it, it, it's good. Everybody likes it. But when it comes to real um, um, uh, implementation and practice, um, uh, multilateral mechanisms are not um, the preferred um, gateway of for, for China to utilize. And I don't see this changing in a in a meaningful way, especially given the current circumstances. Let us hope that stakeholders find more efficient, inclusive, and sustainable ways of working on this in the coming days. Either ways, 
It has been an interesting and enlightening conversation, Moritz. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. This was Dr. Moritz Rudolph. This podcast was brought to you by FES in Asia. Interview by Din Kim Silo. Research by Mekla Jar and Alexander Lipka. Directed by Mirkor Gunter and produced by MediaWalk. Make sure to subscribe, tell your friends about it, and don't forget to visit our website, asia.fes.de, for regular updates on freedom, justice, and solidarity in Asia. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.